Well, let's go ahead, and I know there's more people out in the hallway heading in, but anyway, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll try to kind of get reoriented here where we're at. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of being here. Thank you for everybody that is here, and for bringing us here, and for our um, ability to gather and worship you and study your word and your the history of your acts in history so we just pray that you would guide our thoughts tonight and that we would receive understanding light of all the way you have worked down through the ages we pray it in jesus name amen <coughs> now we ended, I think, the last uh, time we met with the whole Pelagius controversy, right? Anybody remember that? Okay. Um, you guys are worse than I am. But does he, did he remember it? Okay. Um, <clears throat> there's... I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to be giving short shrift to Augustine or Augustine, two different ways to pronounce his name, because he wrote some things and had some thoughts and taught some things that, that really have a major impact on Christianity yet today. Um, one of them, of course, was his kind of veering too far against Pelagius, who taught were born sin-free, we don't have a sinful inclination, went too far in trying to establish that we do and made it so severe <clears throat> that his teaching led him to we can't even cooperate with God. Um, it's essentially we're, we're, we're no longer free to choose. We've lost that capacity. Um, which we could say this, I don't want to get in weeds here, but technically um, there's two great doctrines that are competitive here. The one that comes out of Augustinianism, which is determinism or predestination. It says we're so defiled and so destroyed morally that we lost our ability to even respond to God. Therefore, all salvation is only from God. We don't participate at all. Can't. So he must choose. He does. And I don't know the ratio, but he, he selects a few. And the rest he doesn't select. They go to hell. There's nothing they can do about it. And the others who are saved or, or elect really do nothing about the fact that they're saved. They are compelled by God to repent. They may think they're doing it on their own. They may think they're participating, but they're not. Um, <clears throat> did I mention to you the hymn, Rock of Ages? I don't think I say anything. Okay. Here's a verse out of that. There's a little history. <clears throat> Rock of Ages written by a guy named Augustus Toplady in the 1700s. Well, the 1700s was when John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and the Methodist movement started in England, spread to America. And um, the, the huge two parties that were 
beating heads against each other theological, theologically were <clears throat> the Calvinists, which were the predestinationist five-point tulip that I gave you last week, that you're chosen to be saved or to be lost. There's nothing you can do about it. And Wesley, the Wesleyan movement, were historically... I probably shouldn't even start at this because I'll have to explain too much. Armenians, not Armenians, which aren't they in Turkey? It's not an ethnic group. <coughs> it's Armenians, A-R-M-I-N, um, named after a Dutch theologian, Jacob Arminius, who in the 16, early 1600s, late 1500s, was part of the Dutch Reformation. German Reformation was Luther, spread to every other country. And um, Arminius, there was an attack on Calvinism, or what is today sometimes called Reformed theology. Um, the predestination, the tulip, that I gave you two weeks ago. Uh, Arminius was considered to be the most prominent theologian, uh, Dutch theologian, um, University, I think, of Leiden. At any rate, um, this mortal threat to Calvinism, the, the predestination thing, um, it was by common acclamation, get Arminius to answer for the Calvinist side. He's the best theologian there is. So they gave him that assignment. You've got to raise the flag and fight against the people who are against Calvinism. <clears throat> so he spent at least 18 months, two years, just thoroughly, you know, researching and looking at scripture and reading all kinds of stuff. Well, he came out at the end of two, two years not agreeing with Calvinism. So he flunked his assignment. What they gave him to do, he decided... These guys are right, and I'm defending the wrong position, okay? He came out in favor of, we do have a free will, uh, and I'll explain that in a second. Um, <clears throat> we can resist God's grace. We don't, you know, he doesn't force us to be saved. Um, and and it, it, if you want to use two other terms, just this will be real confusing tonight, and we'll never get anywhere. Monergism and synergism. Monergism is is Calvinism. God, monergism is um, one person's acting, only God. Synergism, S-Y-N, is human divine cooperation. Now that's biblical. Um, Calvinism denies that. But at any rate, um, Arminius came up with his own tulip, but it doesn't spell tulip. But he answered all those five. Um, and he and those who agreed with him were called remonstrants. Okay? Um, and <clears throat> they, state church in all those European countries. And so Arminius was exiled for a while and, you know, he was fired and all kinds of stuff. Um, but just after his name arose the title of Arminianism for the theology that of synergism, divine human cooperation, and God gives me the freedom to not cooperate with him. 
Okay? <clears throat> now, Calvin was an Augustinian. Um, Calvin and Luther got a lot of their theology from Augustine. So they refined it. In some cases, probably took it a little further than he would have meant it to go. But anyway, you have these two streams that still exist in Protestantism today. Um, <clears throat> but going clear back again to Augustine, we don't have a free will. Technically, technically, he's right. But the answer for an Armenian is we've all lost our free will in sin, but in another doctrine, which Catholicism teaches and many Protestants also teach, Arminianism teaches it, it's called prevenient grace. Prevenient meaning the grace that goes before. In other words, the grace that draws my heart, grace restored to us, pure grace. So it's not merit, I don't earn anything. By sheer mercy and grace and kindness, God restored our lost free will in sin and restored it in a narrow sense. I can respond to God as he draws me and seeks for me. I do not have enough free will to um, stop the sinning once I get enslaved to it. I, my free will doesn't go that far. But I can reach up to God who's reaching down to me to get out of it. Therefore, since I could reach to him but didn't, I'm responsible, responsible for my sins, though once I get into them, the bondage grows greater and I can't get out, but I could still respond to God as he tugs at my heart, okay? So it's a narrowing of the free will that he restores to us, but it's enough that he can therefore be totally justified in holding me accountable for what I'm doing. Does that make sense? Okay. I told you this is going to be a meandering thing tonight, and I'm making it worse. Back to the hymn, Rock of Ages. <clears throat> it's got a verse, you know, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, let the, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. Well, top Augustus Top Lady, absolutely despised John Wesley and the Methodists. So he wrote this hymn defending predestination Calvinism and against Wesley and the Methodists. Okay? And here's the verse that brings that out. <clears throat> um, could my zeal no, that's not, yeah, could my zeal, now here's some old words, could my zeal no langer, no, you know what the word langer means? You know, it's, it's, it's rest, um, quit, uh, surrender, um, wear out. Could my zeal no langer, no, could my tears forever flow? These zeal and tears, 
These for sin cannot atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Okay? In other words, seeking God doesn't do anything. Working to try to find God doesn't do anything. Tears of repentance, remorse, sorrow for your sins, no need, can't do them, fix nothing. Thou must save, and thou alone. Okay? That was his jab at the Wesleys who said, our will participates, and we've got to make a choice, and we have to respond to God. Even the ability to respond to God comes from God, but it's a gift that he expects us to exercise. Okay? Now, the, the back story is, <clears throat> not too long after writing that hymn, I think at, at, at not even yet the age of 40, Top Lady died. Um, Wesley lived another, he lived to 88, okay? Rock of Ages, especially because of the first verse, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure, has become a favorite Wesleyan doctrine hymn. Though it was meant as a dig at the Wesleys, okay? Anyway, those, um, those two basic positions, ever since Augustine came up with the doctrine that the whole church never totally bought. Um, there were several councils. They condemned Pelagius and his teaching that we don't, we're not born sinful and that our wills are totally free and we don't, technically, if you do it right and your parents raise you right, you don't ever have to sin, so I don't need, to get, I don't need a Savior. Well, that's absurd. Um, they rightly condemned that, exiled him. I don't know, I can't remember where, where he's in him. But... Um, the church never, though, on the other hand, swung clear over to Augustine. They bought his doctrine of the depth of sin and of the grace of God, even though it's not quite the same as many others teach. We have a different view of grace of God. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the streams that that kind of started still exist today. Um, one other great thing that Augustine did was he wrote called The City of God. He came up with concepts about how does the Christian who is a part of an invisible kingdom that is eternal behave and live and cooperate and participate in the kingdom of this world, the city of this world, because we can't escape it. So what's our place? And how do the two kingdoms interact? Um, that did a lot for the rise of Catholicism, which really in, in a thousand years, four thousand years, replaced almost state governments or subdued national and state governments as a overarching um, authority. So some of what Augustine taught there and then what we deal with today, uh, separation of church and state here and state churches still in other countries, a lot of that Augustine wrote on um, and is still, he's still considered kind of the last word 
on how do we live in a, how do we how do we serve a god an eternal kingdom while living in a temporal one it's it, there's great thoughts that most of us practice today without knowing it okay now <clears throat> um This particular time, we're te- we're, when we talk about Augustine, we're talking about he died in 4, 430, okay, and he was in North Africa. From 430 to like 590 is considered, it, earlier than 430, but 590 is considered kind of, um, I don't know what I'd call it, an in-between period, medieval uh, times didn't start till about 590, 600, and they go clear to the 1500s. So there's your thousand years, or what is called often the Dark Ages. Okay, the papacy, the Pope, began um, emerging about the same time. 590, the first great Pope, I guess you'd say. Well, there was a guy named Leo, which we'll talk about in a minute. But Gregory is kind of the the first true big pope's pope, okay? Um, and I think he came to the papacy in 604. But um, at any rate, you've got so many things going on at the same time that you have to kind of go ahead. We've gone ahead to 430 with the Pelagian controversy, okay? They were still dealing with that even though after both um, Augustine and Pelagius died as late as, I think it was like 459 or, no, no, no. It was 487 or then even in 529, 100 years after Augustine, they were still tinkering with that whole thing with councils that were to set doctrine and so forth. Meanwhile, even before Augustine was born, so you're, now you're back into the late 200s. Um, you have to, I have to go back there a little bit and talk about the rise of another whole movement, another whole doctrine, and that is the rise of what's called asceticism or the monastic movement. Okay? Now, there's another thing that's going to be going on at the same time. So... Um, when we get down here tonight I remember when our kids used to watch Sesame Street and Cookie Monster you know his eyes used that's what I think we might feel like Um, something else going on at the same time is just the beginning of a bit of a gap between Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity and that will take about 500 years to at least finish. But it widened early on. And we'll, we'll get into that maybe yet tonight. Um, that's why today we have Roman Catholic. And a lot of us kind of shake our heads and wonder, what's this Eastern Orthodox? Um, who are they? What's their relation? Well, that's Eastern Christianity. And Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, which came out of that, is Western Christianity. And um, there's, there are a lot of reasons for it that um, were political, were a lot of different things. But at any rate, 
Um, so that's going on. There's a widening split. There's the rise of what's called monasticism. Um, and we'll look at monasticism here for a few minutes. Um, <clears throat> mostly monasticism was a, how can we say this? In some cases, I think it was a justified reaction. Some cases, I think it was an overreaction to what people, uh, mostly uh, preachers, scholars, Bible you know, teachers, felt was the worldliness creeping into the church. Okay? Now, that's always been an issue. But sometimes, some of the issues that seem to be called worldly are in the eye of the beholder. I spent, well, three years, total of 14 back in the Indiana area, three up in northern Indiana, and then um, 11 and a half down near Indianapolis. But northern Indiana is just thick, Amish. But you have all kinds of levels and strata of Amish. And then you have, you have Mennonites. And the Mennonites, uh, the Mennonites are liberals to the Amish. And within the Amish, they're liberals and they're conservatives. Okay? Now, Mennonites will drive a car straight to the hot place, as far as the Amish think. Now, they got to be black. And they paint, if they, if they, they only get black cars. And if the door handles and the bumpers are chrome, they'll paint them black. But it's a car. The Amish, you know, they've got the horse and the buggy. Um, and I was talking to a guy who called me just the other day. Haven't talked to him for years. But he was, um, uh, I will put it this way, he was converted to genuine Christianity, heart brand of Christianity out of Amishism okay and that that happens a lot and they're called jerkovers um, so Elroy Mass is his name he's a jerkover okay or he went English that's the other term they'll use um, and but you'll see all levels of what's worldly and what's not among them Elroy's dad to his dying day was Amish and his mom, Amish, they never, you know, but, and the girls usually can't get out of it. But the boys, when they hit about 16, they can drive cars, they'll do, you know, they'll play in sports at school, whatever, and then when they hit about 20, 21, they got to make their mind up. They either grow back the beard, get the straw hat, the handmade, you know, jeans, um, and go Amish, or they, they leave. Um, well, I can't remember Elroy, his dad's name, but his dad got put on the blacklist. Um, they, they draw straws and, uh, for who's the bishop. Um, and whoever gets bishop, I think you're usually bishop for like two years. Then they draw straws again. Well, you've got to live by the whims of that bishop. Elroy's mother used to grow the most beautiful, different kinds of flowers, sell them. Um, the Amish, every, what was about, I think it was every Friday or every Saturday, you'd go down the, the roads and there Amish farms everywhere. Um, 
and they'd be out front with a, either you know pies, um, bread, all kinds of food, or quilts, which were phenomenal, and you know you'd pay thousands for them. Um, all different kinds of crafts and things that they would sell. Um, she would sell flowers. Well, they drew straws, got a bishop, and he believed. He, he declared that the African violets and all the stuff she grew were too gaudy. I mean, God made those, but they were too flowery and too bright and they're worldly. So, can't have them. Then Elroy's dad committed the unpardonable. The Amish were usually loathed around there because they had steel wheels on the buggies. They had steel, they, they'd even have those old, you know, those steel uh, lug wheels tractors. Well, they just tore the blacktop up. And even when they, they outlawed those, uh, the state did. And you still, though, you have these ruts where the steel wheels of the buggies wear down the pavement. Well, some of them, some of the Amish, and Elroy's dad, I don't know what happened to him, he totally backslid, and he put bicycle wheels, rubber tires, on his buggy, okay? That's anathema. He was denied communion as long as he had rubber tires on his buggy. When he finally relented and went back to the steel wheels, he, he could take communion again, okay? Um, it, 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 I could be here all night. Um, but at any rate, so what's worldly to one person may not be to someone else. But in a response to worldliness, as some saw it, the first hints of what asceticism is just self-affliction, punishment of yourself. Um, there, the, the monastery movement really started out not organized at all, and it was mostly single, they were called, then they called them hermits, and the word hermit just goes back to a word that means desert. So there's a whole class of people for at least 100, 150 years that are called the desert fathers, okay? They, would, they were hermits, recluses, they would go out, and they would be alone. They might allow a few people to visit them that were considered like students of theirs who would learn, you know, go up to the old man on the mountain kind of a deal. They'd live in caves out in the Sinai Desert or someplace there. Most of them were around Egypt and so forth. But they would be, there was one, I can't remember, I think it might have been a guy named Anthony. But at any rate, he lived in a cave. Well, he got so famous for being such a saint because he lived out in this cave and people deliver food to him and all this that the more people started visiting him, it ruined his um, hermitness. And so near his cave, he put up a pillar, a thick pillar with kind of a platform on the top. And I'm not making this up. He lived up there with his disciples, you know, running a bucket of food or, you know, whatever up to him for 30 years, okay? Um, you know, all of it escaping the infection and the sin and the temptations of this filthy world, okay? The theory being that if you 
get away physically from this world, um, it will enable you to live um, what they called then, and it's still really a valid term, Christian perfection, meaning loving God with a single motive and um, loving God with your whole heart. Well, but you can't love your neighbors yourself because you don't have any. Um, withdrawing from society then was a, that was viewed though as, um, those guys were viewed as holy men. Now, even religions that like all the different religions you find in India today, for instance, they have those, they still have those kinds of men that are kind of hermits and they, they're, they're considered holy men. And they'll do stuff like grow their fingernails real long and, or their hair, you know, whatever. But uh, supposedly, you know, it makes them holy. The, here's the fundamental problem with it. <clears throat> it locates sin in humanity and in the physical body and the physical, the, the body and the psychology, you know, psuche, um, our personalities, our temperament, all of the bodily and um, we could say psychological and emotional drives and needs that God implanted, it put into us, were considered that's where sin and temptation come from, okay? So you need to get away from the things out here that will appeal to that, and you need to go and um, starve yourself, deprive yourself of sleep, um, only have one blanket, no matter if it's a three-blanket night. Um, any way you can punish your body, because your body is the problem. Jesus said, he didn't say, out of our body comes murder, adultery, lying, hatred. He said, out of the heart. Okay? This is not my problem. It's an avenue and all of the drives and desires God gave us are ways, avenues for sin, but they're not the source of it. It's in my heart. So that's a colossal mistake that that thinking <clears throat> brought about. So then you ended up with, it began to, to something that you still have in, in both Orthodox Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholicism, you have a division among Christians, Christian, um, professing Christians. You have the laity and you have the clergy or the, the holy consecrated people who live in caves, beat themselves, do all kinds of stuff. And the modern, you know, barely there um, Christian uh, Christianity wise um, they might make it purgatory is mostly for them because they're a mess anyway um, and you've got this you've got this upper echelon that is so much closer to God because of all of these um, self it, flagellation Martin Luther thousand years after this um, would ha <clears throat> had a metal 
chain or sometimes he would weave um, you know weave his own leather whip and he, they would find him passed out in his monastery cell um, from beating himself, starving himself, depriving himself of sleep, um, not drink water, um, sleep in a cold cell without a blanket, all that kind of stuff, saying, and he would say, my sins, my sins, my sins. It never, of course, did anything for him. And when he woke up to that is when he saw the just live by faith. And God just opened his heart and his mind um, and out of recognizing I'm saved by faith in Jesus who bore my sins, this physical punishment, self-punishment, is nothing, um, woke him up. And out of that came the Protestant Reformation. But at any rate, I'm way ahead there. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, you started out with the Desert Fathers, um, they felt the basic teaching was this renunciation of all bodily comforts even you, you, you all the way from all the way from sexual drives god gave to food to not wanting to be cold at night <laughs> you don't you deny them all if you would if it brings you pleasure and comfort you know, to have a nice fur blanket if you're in a cave out in somewhere, then you don't have it. You get rid of it. Yeah. What'd you say? There's too much noise going on. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, exactly. Where it talks about it's of no profit. Self, you talk about that scripture where self-punishment uh, and so forth is of no profit against the flesh. And by the word flesh there, he's talking about sarks, which is the earthly, sensual nature. Sinful nature, you're exactly right. And Paul's whole point there is you're not able to reach the problem by starving yourself because your problem's not your stomach. It's the flesh. It's the sinful nature. That's the problem. Um, <clears throat> so, yes, that is exactly. And um, you look at verses like that and you think, why didn't these guys who did nothing but read the Bible ever see that? I don't know. Um, but anyway... This began to grow as a movement, and at the same time, Christianity is becoming more acceptable. Constantine comes to the throne. He lifts all the punishments against Christians. The person that followed him, um, Theodosius or somebody, then not just neutralized the treatment towards Christians, he then outlawed everything but Christianity. So. Later on, after Constantine, it did become the state religion, Christianity. Um, well, automatically, I've mentioned to you before, people flood into it. It's now acceptable socially. In fact, it might be socially necessary help, to help you climb the ladder. Um, man, if the emperor uh, is a Christian, 
I'm on the bandwagon. So it obviously uh, dilutes the meaning of being Christian. So that even drove more people into this monastic, separate, go out in the desert kind of stuff. Um, then, but here's another thing that um, grew up, and this, this is back to the east-west thing. Mon monasticism really started in the east. Palestine, Egypt, Alexandria, North Africa, um, and their idea of, okay, so what do you do if you are a desert father, if you're one of the hermits? You contemplate. You read, read scripture. You read what early church fathers, some few a century earlier, wrote in their commentaries on scripture or whatever. But you sat around and you, you you're, it was mostly a thing of the mind. You denied your body, but you spent your time in solitary contemplation. Now, I can't imagine something any more boring than that. But to think of something that's unboring is sinful. You see what I mean? And if, it, if it's boring, it's holy. If it, if it engages your interest and you like it, then don't do it. It's kind of like the diets today. You know, whatever, whatever tastes good, don't eat it. Um, you can't. It ruins everything. This is what it led to. And, and it just got worse and worse as far as the um, excesses that they went to. But in the East, they spent their time in contemplation. Monasticism in the Western part of the Roman Empire took a different form. Um, some of it was similar as far as until it got better organized, private or you know solitude. But as the West, Western part, Britain, Gaul, France, Spain, um, most of Italy, um, and going up a bit north from Italy and across North Africa, they built monasteries where they lived together in community. They weren't solitary. Uh, maybe at first, but it wasn't long until monasticism in the Western half of the Roman Empire, which is now basically Christian, they saw in their minds the necessity for community. So they got together in monasteries, which were crude and primitive, maybe caves or whatever, but pretty soon it got to where, um, I think it was in the 800s, um, was the, I can't, I can't pronounce it, it's the one, it's a really famous monastery in Italy, northern Italy, and there's pictures of covered with smoke and bombing, and they were, you know, the, the World War II, they fought all over, but they sort of agreed not to bomb the place. Um, starts with a C. Um, famous, huge, white, um, huge stone monastery that I, th I think is still there. It was partially damaged in World War II. But at any rate, um, that thing had been there for, from the 800s. Um, but that typified the whole mental um, and governmental and 
and organizational thinking of the West. They had rules, they set down rules, and they had times, uh, you know, you got, at three, got up at three, you prayed and sang till five, then you, you know, you, the guys, they had their little jobs and stuff that they did throughout the monastery. But the interesting thing, maybe it's not interesting, but the Eastern monks, Again, they just hung out by themselves, amounted to absolutely nothing, in a sense, that they did write some good stuff, but they just contemplated stuff. Western monastery at least felt, we have to do something, serve, activity, but it has to be solely, um, not for ourselves, but for others, okay? So, as they got better and better organized, um, they really became, in spite of the fact that in many cases they themselves became debauched, they were into homosexuality and it was a, it was a mess. Still, they, uh, the monasteries who gave themselves to nothing but growing crops would teach the, you know, the peasants new farming um, methods. They, you know, they, they made things they grew food, they even discovered um, medical stuff, and they would go out and start little schools and teach the kids how to read. And so Western monasticism's main goal was to serve. Eastern was to hunker down in a cave and think a lot, okay? Um, <clears throat> you can see which one died out. You can anticipate which one just kind of died out and which one actually, in spite of all the issues with it um, for a while did a lot of good um, and that was western that was that was even part of the going different different directions um, but basically the monks taught this you had to have a separated life get out of the day-to-day um, -day grind you didn't go to the marketplace unless you went to sell you know stuff or whatever but you didn't have much to do with the with the culture at large. And there were three basic vows that most, there were some extra, but these are the three basic ones that you had to take. Vow of poverty, um, vow of chastity, vow of obedience. And obedience, of course, was to the uh, mother superior, if it was convents, it was started later, or the abbot. The abbot was considered the head of the monastery, the lead monk. Um, now, there were others, guys, you know, they would take a vow of silence, um, you know, whatever else. But those were the three that everybody had to, to um, vows they had to make. And they had basically three activities. One, worship, worship and singing, so forth, um, which was, was a community. And then prayer, some of that um, with others, much of it alone. Um, so we could say worship, roll that up in worship and singing and praying is one. Two, study. Um, they were, now here's another thing. The monks preserved, we wouldn't have Latin for instance today even though it's quote a dead uh, language. The monks are the only people kept it alive. Um, because they copied the Bibles in Latin and um, kept Greek alive, though Greek 
was a language of the people. But um, Latin died out, but it's still here because of the monasteries, um, largely. <clears throat> Worship, study, manual labor. It was required that you do something with your hands as far as maintaining the monastery itself, um, copying uh, scripture or you know books and keeping that course. They had no printing press. Everything was by hand. Um, so there were guys that that's, they were copyists. That's all they did. They worshiped, they prayed, and they copied. Um, and then you have people that you know, worked outside. You had, they basically had a farm and a garden and all that. And so there was, they demanded um, productive labor, all of which was really, um, was good. And it made Western monasticism far more practical and impactful than Eastern um, who were hermits. Um, just kind of hold up. Um, now, pros and cons of monasticism. This, there's no way to try to sum up, well, we say a thousand years, but the monasteries are still alive and active today. So, um, but the monasteries were a dominant, hugely important part of Catholicism in, um, up until and after the Protestant Reformation. But, the, some cons. One, um, it's it, solitude, even though you're in, the Western case was di a bit different. They were in a community. But still, you take a vow of silence. I don't care if you're with 500 monks or nobody. It, you know, if, if you're vow of silence, you're still alone you know that's unnatural so that's the first thing it's not natural um, and I think close with that it's really um, it's unnatural it's unscriptural where God never told Christians to hole up to withdraw to hunker down to kind of get an Alamo uh, fortress mentality and never mingle with the community never know your neighbors, never even have any neighbors, intentionally locate some place where um, there's nobody around. Uh, he never told us to do that. He meant for us to be salt by being in the community. Um, so as much as we can, Christians are supposed to be involved in the PTA and coach soccer when they can. I mean, we're supposed to be a part of the fabric of the culture that we're in. That's how we shine. So it's unscriptural in that sense. And then the third thing we can say about it, it was spectacularly unsuccessful, even though there were some good things out of it. Um, in the West especially, there were just um, routine, I'm going to say every couple, maybe every 50 to 100 years or 200 years, a reform movement because it had gone to pot, okay? And you had, you had every, basically every vice um, of society itself that they were trying to escape, they brought inside the walls of the monastery in here. And so they became corrupt, greedy, 
fighting, accumulating all kinds of money. The monasteries ended up, especially in England, but a lot of places, but in Britain, the monasteries were just massive landowners. Um, in some cases, the church owned more money that before the Church of England was formed. They owned more land than the king did. Um, they were fabulously wealthy. Um, and so, and they were, you know, they were, they would have nuns that would sometimes, you know, do cooking or laundry, you know, whatever. They'd figure out ways to hook up with the nuns over, you know, the hill. And it, you know, the whole thing ended up just being a cesspool, okay? That's what led to it being um, unsuccessful. Now, here's some pros to it. Um, it preserved a huge amount of literary works that we wouldn't have. Today, um, well, we've been talking about Pelagius, about Augustine, about guys earlier, Athanasius. We, I think it's likely we wouldn't have heard of any of those guys except they faithfully for centuries and centuries copied their books, their commentaries on Scripture, their, um, you know, sermons, things like that. That's how we even know some of those guys existed. So they, they, they had a great contribution to keeping um, alive and passing down to generations. The thinking, the preaching, the doctrinal, um, mulling things over and debates um, of, the, of the early church. Bible translations and learning in general, um, even though we call it the Dark Ages, in a lot of ways it was, um, but still they kept a, at least a candle going of learning and of um, as simple as the alphabet and knowing how to read. Um, yes, literacy rates dropped, but they kept a, enough of it alive that um, it was able to you know, come back. Um, <clears throat> centers of teaching and, ser and service. Every single one of the universities in Europe were started by monasteries in the church. If, in fact, just reading today, I think it was Wall Street Journal, short comment about um, talking about private colleges, virtually every private university in the United States has its origins with a religious group, either a denomination or whatever. Um, and some of the absolute worst that you can um, think of Harvard,